Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Professor of Religion Mark Taylor's book, Last Works, Lessons in Leaving. First, we'll hear Mark speaking about his book at the panel, and later, I'll bring you the comments author and lecturer in psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College, Siri Hustvedt, made about Mark's book at the panel. Thank you all, thank you very much, Gil, and thank you all for coming. I wish I could uh, take credit for, for timing this with uh, consideration of last works on Good Friday and the Passover. <laughs> it never occurred to any of us that uh, that was in fact what they was. I want to, uh, at the outset, express my deep appreciation for all of these people participating today. It's especially meaningful for me because all of these participants are writers. Uh, and uh, I mean something very specific by writing, and I want to try to talk about that a little bit. Not all that is written is writing. Both Holmes and Siri and Nick and Gil um, are writers, and that, that's important. Uh, I thought I might begin by uh, talking about baseball. Um, you know, as Gil and Clemence know, I keep saying you can't understand America without understanding sports, more particularly baseball. Um, and as Siri knows, married to uh, an avid Mets fan, Deep, deep I, uh, <laughs> against whom I think we might, we might have played against each other while we were in high school in New Jersey. I'm not 100% sure, but Westfield High and Columbia played, played each other. Uh, and Nick is, is hopeless because he's from Australia, and I've never understood. I'm sure baseball's. We were puzzled. so ashamed um, we kept him crying on the TV. You know, so um, when I was beginning to think about uh, this book, uh, it was about the time that uh, Derek Jeter was ending his career. And Jeter, I'm a Red Sox fan, Jeter always irritated me. Um, it's totally goody good. Uh, and uh, not a green ball player at all. Uh, but he had announced it in, uh, in uh, 19. In, in 2014, it was going to be his last season. So I decided that I'd try to go to his last game. And it wasn't easy to get tickets, so I happened to have a friend that was actually, was actually Hank Greenberg's son, a great baseball player. Steve got me tickets to see Jeter's last game. And it turned out exactly as a Red Sox fan hoped it would never turn out. And that is the Yankees were up three runs. They lost the lead, tied the game, going into the bottom of the ninth, and Jeter came up with a runner on first or second, which it was, and he hits a game-winning double uh, to end his career, uh, exactly as this goody-goody ball player uh, should have ended his career. But there was something poignant in that for me, because one of the one of the models that I've had in life, and it's related to this, is that there's nothing more depressing than watching a great pitcher pitch after he's lost his fastball. Uh, and so, this book, in many ways, um, 
it's about many things. It's not a biographical uh, component. But it's about the whole problem of Indy and Levy, uh, which is not simple. So it's not simply about that. It's a But it's a question of, you know, why is it so hard to end or leave? And again, ending and leaving aren't the same. You can end without leaving, and you can leave without ending in important ways. Um, and there's an article in the Times today, the headline of which is, many people try to retire, then change their minds. Um, so part of what I was thinking about with this, as a person who, you know, who's been forced to think about endings, um, and you know, approaching the ending of my life and career, and watching my friends and colleagues deal with ending, um, and watching the difficulty so many of them have with ending or retiring. Um, uh, there, there are multiple reasons for that, it seems. Some are, it's often packaged in financial terms, but I don't think it's always about finances. Um, uh, I think that part of what goes on with this, it's not that these people are so enthralled with what they're doing, that they're terrified of not having something to do. So it becomes a strategy um, of avoidance. Uh, but it's also part of a society that, um, that associates identity with career, such that not to have a career is not to have an identity in certain ways. And I think, and this is related to speed limits in some ways, it's about a society in which there's been a change in the social status of leisure. Um, that uh, not to be working is not meant in the I mean, previous areas, sometimes social status was measured by how little you work. Now it's measured by how much you work. Or if you're not working, if you're not employed, right, somehow you're not important. So you know, there are all of these issues that are going on with this. The other thing is, closer to home, is I watch some of the writers that I most admire. They can't stop writing. Um, and one of the things that I've said to, uh, to students over the years, and probably in some of the classes that some of you have had with me, I've often said the only writers worth reading are those who cannot not write. Um, and uh, you know, as I watched Derrida as a he couldn't stop writing. Right? And he wrote long after he had anything new to say. Uh, uh, or Tom Allheiser, a name not well known, but a very, very important philosopher and theologian. Tom's in his 90s and he still writes. And I tried to get him to stop. <laughs> but there's something about that, you know, about that. Um, compulsion. So, you know, in certain ways, my question then became a question of writing. Why write? Right. Um, or why not write? Or why do we continue to write long, demanding books, as everybody at this table has, in an era when nobody reads long, demanding <laughs> books? Right. Um, what is it uh, about writing? And one of the things that I've, I've thought for many, many years, and again, you've heard this in classes, is that religion for me is always most interesting where it's least obvious. Right? That what's happened, uh, and this is at the heart of all the misguided discussions of secularism, in my judgment, is that issues 
fundamental human issues that had been thought through for years in relation to religion and theology have gotten displaced through art and literature in many, in many ways. And so writing, uh, it seems to me, in certain ways becomes a way of wrestling with these perennial, not perennial, but with these uh, recurrent kinds of issues. So I think what I often do, and that is look to my ghosts. Um, and the figures that I selected for this book are those who have been important to me in different ways over the years. And I was struck by multiple things, right? Uh, I wasn't looking for commonalities, but there are commonalities. Uh, first thing I was struck by is how young so many of them and how much they did in such a short time. Kierkegaard was 42. Everything he published he wrote in 13 years. Um, Nietzsche was 44 when he went insane, died when he was 50. Before he slipped into total madness, had an incredibly intense period in which he wrote four, not long, but very, very important works in a very short time. Paul was 39 when he fell into a drunken stupor on the Baltimore Street and had no money even to be buried. Thoreau was 44 when he died and sick for many years with tuberculosis. Uh, uh, David Foster Wallace was 46 um, when he took his life. Um, Melville published what I took to be his last work when he was 38. Everything Melville published other than the long poem. Clara. Clara. Uh, and Billy Budd, which wasn't discovered until 1924. But every, everything he published, he, he, everything he published wrote in 12 years. Well, we did sold 400 copies in his lifetime. He then stopped writing and, for, and didn't die until he, was, until he was 72. So for 34 years, the greatest writer America has produced lived in this silence. There were three suicides, four to count for it. Um, Hegel said, the happy ears are the blank pages of history. Uh, now, one doesn't want to romanticize all this, but contented um, lives don't, be, don't deal with important literature. Torn lives do. Uh, and part of what goes on with these writers in so many different ways, it seems to me, is a wrestling with um, uh, that which cannot be comforted. Uh, um, I would say the works that you want to read, whether the artworks or are, are those that you can never exhaust. Works that will take you elsewhere um, and try to engage you uh, with something that um, that we're always after. After as an interesting interpretation in subsequent to or in pursuit of. Uh, so these writers are, are, are always after uh, something. They're always, uh, they're always pursued by, and that's why they can't stop in an obsession about it, and in pursuit of. Uh, and it's that, that temporal ang that, 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 that temporal tension, it seems to me, is what uh, energizes their work. And it seems to me that that's what writing is about. What makes writing writing uh, distinctively is, is precisely that endless attempt to say the unsayable, to speak the unspeakable, uh, to pursue that which can never be possessed. 
were to be possessed by that which could never be possessed in that. And each of these figures was in one way or another haunted. Haunted by certain kinds of ghosts, both nameable and unnameable. Uh, and for me, those are the writers and those are the artists uh, that are worth a really brief time that we have um, to think about. Now, we'll hear author Siri Hustvate's words from the panel. Well, this is a text, writers write, as we've been saying. First, a poem by Ron Podgett, one I become more fond of as I age. It's called Haiku, and goes like this. That was fast, I mean life. Last works, lessons in leaving might be less urgent reading for those who can't laugh or at least smile at Paget's poem. Some awareness of proximity to death is required, a lived consciousness of the fast feeling brought on by age or accident or illness. Life was slow in my childhood. Death is both the most ordinary and the strangest thing we will never recall, mirrored only by birth, Another event that can be witnessed by others but not remembered by the person born. Another requirement for this book is that the reader must herself be a reader. Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Blanchot, Freud, Derrida, Poe, Wolf, Hemingway, Wallace, Melville, Thoreau, they are the book's interlocutor ghosts that have become the author's intimates through reading and rereading. Only those of us who are immersed in the reading life, who are shot through with books that have changed us, who are so saturated with the voices of others, we have become positively sodden, are prepared for these lessons in leaving. I'm sad this is true, but it is. The happy few. A distinguished list of writers, canonic, even David Foster Wallace qualifies, now sanctified, at least in the U.S. I have read them all, loved them all, except Wallace, whom I can only admire intermittently. I love Hemingway's In Our Time and a number of the other stories, but recoil from most of his novels for the very reasons Virginia Woolf articulated in her review of The Sun Also Rises, which Mark quotes. This is Virginia Woolf. So it would seem that the thing that is faked is character, end quote. I'm afraid I feel the same about Wallace. Some marvelous openings into character, but far too few in texts bloated by a preening, frightened narcissism. My own lessons would include Kierkegaard, Freud, and Wolf, my overlaps with Mark, which is also to say that were I given the same assignment, I would have a different table of contents. <laughs> and yet, this very thought was born of my reading a book that invites dialogue, opens itself to interrogations of the between, the zone of animated, if ambiguous, interactions between me and the text. But that's always the case, you may say. Yes, but I have read countless books and papers in many disciplines and novels, too, that have a locked, boarded up, sealed quality to them that sends me searching for the door, and when I find it, there is a sign that says, do not enter. 
But that may be my misperception. There might be an open window I can't see. William James famously distinguished between tough and tender philosophers, but what he really wanted to say was that our attractions to ideas are rooted in our temperaments, our embodied passions shaped by our characters, which is also to say the course of our own lives. Our involvement with books is more than what we can recite about the ideas or stories inside them. Our attractions, as Mark notes, are rooted in affect. Affects are not algorithms. Felt experience and tacit knowledge are not easily amenable to Cartesian method, to, to the step-by-step, -step, to linear coding. But inside the books themselves, inside the presentation of ideas, even those dictated by, say, Boolean logic, there is always also something else. As Alfred North Whitehead wrote, every philosophy is tinged with the coloring of some secretive, imaginative background which never emerges explicitly into its trains of reasoning." End quote. As for the order of things in this book, the sequence of writers, Thoreau is last because, quote, Thoreau brings abstractions down to earth where one is able to find the infinite in the finite and in this way enables one to go on even when hope is faint, end quote. And then another quote from the book. Finally, a less obvious though, no less important reason that Thoreau gets the last word. The love of his work is where my mother, a literature teacher, and my father, a science teacher, met and thus where my life truly began, end quote. We are, every one of us, both and, two in one, and the something more, genetic but also epigenetic creatures. And when we reach a certain age, we become body subjects who travel backward and forward in our reflective self-consciousness, journeys impossible without another person. We can see ourselves as others through the eyes of the other, and that relation is neither as abstract nor as combative as Hegel's parable of master and slave. Hegel haunts last works. He is always in Mark's books even when he doesn't speak. I envy Mark his intimacy with Hegel. I am often before. <laughs> but Anisich as opposed to Fürsich is a concept invaluable to me. I am responding, not analyzing. I want to open up the many conversations started in the, in the book among the writers between its covers and between me and it to ask questions that move us somewhere. How to think about last works, not themselves flesh, but works that came from living bodies. How to think about ourselves as future dead things, once animated with breath and heartbeat, alive with the rhythms of day and night, of waking and sleeping, of reading and writing, of making love, of the contractions of birth. Some writers' endings evoke the body. This is from Mark, trembling, delirium, wavering, intensity. Others are disembodied, completion, imminence, silence. How are we to think of the beats of existence still? The writing stopped. No ending without beginning. 
this book flirts with the human beginning, which is so often suppressed in Western philosophy or abstracted into notions of unity, the undifferentiated, the oceanic, the nameless maternal territory that is then fragmented, divided. The body of the mother disappears. Exceptions, Wilhelm Diltheim and Hannah Arendt. Put them in. Kierkegaard never wrote about his mother. She is the emptiness around which all his words circle, but he cannot contain the gushing metaphors about gestation and birth and umbilical connections, rampant metaphors. Only Kierkegaard of the philosophers I have read turns and leaps around the silence of God, the mother. And Freud of the oceanic feeling whose obsession with the father, with fathers and sons, caused him to elide the mother in his work. She is what is poorly articulated what he couldn't face. It would be later psychoanalysts who took on the maternal, Klein, Winnicott, Bean, Bowlby, and through Bowlby has come a vast literature on human attachment that grew into empirical work on the dyad, again, infant and mother or infant and primary caretaker, the two in one, the both and, the interdependent. Without that real early relation, the real baby dies way before autobiographical memory kicks in. Good to remember. In the chapter on Virginia Woolf, I read these words, this is Mark, suspended between the trauma of birth and the trauma of death, life remains inescapably liminal, end quote. Yes, when life is a line that stops and starts, when it is biography, when the eye is marching forward towards the wall. And in the same chapter, a whispered refrain, not of repeated words, but of an underlying thought, quote, the mother, once again the mother, and the river that is the undercurrent of human life, end quote. Hemingway, we are told in the book, hated his mother. The real person, not an ocean or a watery principle, the woman who dressed him as a girl. A quote in the book from Bataille linked to Wolf, quote, Decay summed up the world we spring from and return to, and horror and shame were attached to both our birth and death. That nauseous, rank, and heaving matter, frightful to look upon a ferment of life, teeming with worms, grubs, and eggs, is at the bottom of the decisive reactions we call nausea, disgust, or repugnance." End quote. Bataille is right that what runs and drools and rots and crosses corporeal boundaries is ripe for disgust. What Mary Douglas so brilliantly examines in her book Purity and Danger, and Julia Kristeva, who was deeply influenced by Douglas, calls the abject. And yet, the former soldier and former Catholic, the librarian Bataille, who delighted in the eroticism of crashing through walls, expresses the horror that has informed Western philosophy since the Greeks, nauseous, rank, heaving matter, identified with woman and birth, merger and muck, with womb as curious synonym for tomb. Anyone who has given birth to a child that lived cannot help but find this endless mantra of womb and tomb peculiar. But in this rhyme, woman as matter is the image of death, 
Metaphors and rhymes open paths to thought and they shut them down. The mother is so often the hidden figure, the abject figure of nature itself, that woman often appears as a pollutant in philosophy. Last works moves in an arc toward a natural ending, from completion to earth, an ending that is not an ending and which is not nauseating, but gives some circular meaning moving forward to go backward to the biologist father's park and the mother who read and taught books, the mother thinker and teacher. We fear death, but immortality would be the true horror. We would stop writing for our lives. The yawn of the future would be intolerable. Last works are last only on the hindsight of others, but we depend on the thought. We need the thought. This might be the last book. Thoreau brings us down to earth, to Walden Pond and the woods he enchanted with great English prose. The peripatetic philosopher who looked as closely as Goethe and Darwin, who Mark notes he read carefully, Darwin cited Goethe, in his introduction to On the Origin of Species. So many links, links made by the writer and links made by the reader, and so many ironies. Thoreau, who may have died a virgin, who was a bit of a prude. One feels it in the work, observed well. We die because we are nature, and nature is not a she to be observed in comfort or in nurturing mother either. None of us is more or less natural than anyone else. Living is a biographical line, but also a circle. Thoreau's decaying autumn leaves that, quote, choose the spot where men are moldering beneath and meeting them halfway, end quote. Spring is implicit, even if it will not be my spring. This is a book that calls for a letting go and opening up and making further links to other writers and other thinkers and other ghosts. Another circle. The writer is dead. I pick up the book. I read. And now it's alive. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Mark Taylor's last works, Lessons in Leaving. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Caitlin Gillespie's Boudicca, Warrior Woman of Roman Britain. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky. <laughs>